This evening I thought it could be useful to consider together the theme of wanting to make progress in practice. Of course if we don't want to make progress then we're probably not going to be making a lot of effort and probably won't make progress. And, um, so it's perfectly natural thing to want to make progress in practice. However, the way we want has a big effect on, on the results. Thinking about, for instance, the way we hold wanting are we really grasping in a way that amounts to demanding progress? And if we don't make progress, do we get judgmental of ourselves? Or are we always checking up? Say, am I making progress? Or am I going backwards? Am I wasting time? Part of this is determined by the way we hold wanting. So you could be thinking about how, for instance, if you're working in the kitchen and you, you've got a really sharp knife and, and you know, the knife is important for mm. cutting the vegetables and hold it too firmly, you can, things can go wrong. If you don't hold it firmly enough, things can go wrong. Right? Or if you're doing some carpentry and you're using a sharp chisel, the way you hold the chisel there's a right way to hold the chisel. Too firmly, that doesn't work. Not firm enough, that doesn't work. Or a musical instrument. Those of you that have played a musical instrument. It's playing the piano, how you hold your wrists. Or you're holding a guitar, holding a violin. So this is a useful question. One that potentially could be helping inform our meditation practice. The way we hold wanting to progress in practice has a big effect on the results of practice. And if we're holding it too tightly, if we're holding it, our desire in an unskillful, uninformed way, uh, it can end up becoming like a demand, and we can find ourselves always checking up or judging ourselves or being critical or comparing ourselves with other people. So how then do we gauge whether we're wanting in the right way? Well, we start off, as we do with most things, we, we think about it. And we, we read about it. We, we listen to what other people have to say about it, those who've been practicing longer than we have. We talk it over with them. And how do you learn to make the right kind of effort? You know, I want to progress my practice, but I find that I'm always comparing myself with other people. And so we think about it, we talk about it, we study it. This is 
uh, on the terms of traditional Buddhist spiritual practice. This is called the pariyati level of practice, or the level of studying about Dhamma, studying about practice. However, sooner or later, hopefully, we'll find that we have enough familiarity with the techniques that we've been given, with the, the skills that we've been taught, counting the breathing, focusing on the sensation of the breathing, listening to the sound of silence, uh, working on a theme of, of meta-meditation and his various uh, techniques and uh, strategies that we've been given by other people. And hopefully we eventually feel sufficient familiarity to have internalized the structure itself. And, and then we can start getting creative. And then it, we don't have to be so much thinking about our meditation. Am I doing this right? Am I doing it the way that somebody else is doing it? Rather, it turns into a, a sensing inquiry rather than a conceptual inquiry. We're feeling our way going forward. And this is, so this is now talking about the pati-pati level of practice. In the beginning, yes, it's right, we use our thinking, we use our conceptual ability. That's the level of working with approximations. And it only takes us so far. If we remain at that level, it can lead to a lot of misunderstanding. So hopefully sooner or later we get to the point of realizing that being overly identified in our heads, being overly identified in the thinking aspect of our being, is really a limitation. We don't just hear that or read that and then believe it or go along with it, but we start to see it for ourselves. That You don't get past a certain point. You're always comparing, always uh, analyzing, rather than simply being with who we are here in this moment with this experience, including if we are doubting our meditation. Can we be there with the feeling of doubt, the feeling of doubt, inquire into what does that feeling feel like? Now we're no longer comparing ourselves with instruction that somebody else gave us, but we're really in touch with what's happening for us here and now. So we're coming out of our heads and more into our hearts, into our bodies. So, as I said, sooner or later we hopefully come to realize that being overly identified in the thinking aspect of our being is a limitation. And it's like staying on the level of pariyati practice and you know, just dealing with concepts. And you find this sometimes in, amongst even well-intentioned Buddhists. They can get very uptight and argumentative about aspects of the teachings. How much samadhi are you supposed to have? In the scriptures it says this, and then that teacher said that, and what's the right amount of samadhi? And as if thinking about the right amount of samadhi is the point. Thinking is the place to start. Then we need to move beyond thinking into feeling, sensing inwardly. Is this working or not? Always staying on the level of concepts can be very confusing. And there's limited possibilities. 
labels, believing in labels, samadhi, vipassana, anapanasati, satipatthana, these labels that we have in practice, are useful as pointers. However, if we attach to the pointers, we go away from ourselves, trying to be something more than what we are, rather than using the pointers to turn inwards and meet ourselves where we're already at. So practice is a different orientation of effort, turning inwards, sensing inwards. Once again, if we just remain with believing in labels and trying to get an ultimate sense of security, we're holding on to a label, an approximation, a concept, we're going to get very disappointed, as I said, we can get very confused. Labels are incredibly limited. Like the other day I was having a, well not exactly an argument, but I was having a, a difference of opinion with one of the monks here who he came and told me, he said, you told me the other day that John said he was going to Norway and I've just been talking to John and he looked at me like I was an idiot. He didn't go to Norway. I said, well, John told me he was going to Norway. I know, John told me. He said, no, no, he, he didn't go to Norway. He doesn't know what you're talking about. So I went into my explanation. I said, well, John told me he was flying from here to there on that date for so many days and going to this center, and, and then he'd come back again after a wee while and he definitely told me he was going to Norway. I said, oh, okay. Eventually we did realize, well, there's two Johns living here on the hill and one John went to Norway and the other one didn't. Very limited possibilities so long as we're clinging to labels and believing that we are our thinking. So we need to learn how to distrust our thinking, not reject, not demonize, not try and get rid of thinking. Thinking is a very valuable instrument. However, to be identified as it is inherently limited. In a conversation with somebody recently, this is somebody who's been practicing for a good period of time, certainly with great sincerity and growing confidence and appreciation for these teachings. And, and he was explaining to me how curious it was to find that even though recently in his experience he, circumstances were such that he was feeling discontented, he was aware that at the same time as feeling discontented, there was also a feeling of contentment. So from the perspective of labels, from the perspective of thinking, how can I feel contented and I feel discontented at the same time? Well, for people who don't practice, that is probably not going to make much sense. Even from the perspective of a conceptual appreciation of multidimensional awareness, like the image that I spoke about before of the ocean, on the surface of the ocean it can be quite tumultuous. And you go a little deeper and it's still it's still the same ocean. And deeper level it's still on the surface it's tumultuous. So if we stop identifying with the thinking mind and engage in a more sensing inquiry, we open up to other possibilities. One of those possibilities is getting back to the theme of wanting to progress in practice 
one of those possibilities is that we'll start to inquire in a different way into our relationship with wanting. And hopefully, again, we'll realize that being identified as wanting is inherently limited again. In fact, it's a disaster. The second noble truth, clinging to desire, creates craving. It's a disaster. It's the cause of suffering. And yet, we think it's so normal. And it feels so convincing. This I that I experience myself to be really takes my desires very seriously. I can remember when I was trying to stop smoking cigarettes, this is many years ago now, and I was already a monk, and, and it was uh, embarrassing because I knew it didn't help me, it wasn't healthy, it wasn't suitable, and yet I was addicted. Or I felt like I was addicted. Eventually I did succeed, thankfully. But at the time where that thought comes, well, I want a cigarette, it feels so convincing. It really, really feels so convincing. It really does feel that way. It really does seem that way on a certain level. We need to be willing and eventually, hopefully, able to investigate I want, not just as a concept, but also as a feeling in the body, I want. Do I have to believe in this? Is this really safe? Is this really reliable? Being identified as this movement that we call wanting, that we call desire. Just because most people seem to be identified with, I want this, I want to be understood, I want to go on a holiday, I want to eat such and such a food. It can be consuming. What is the alternative to being identified as wanting, as that movement? Again, it's so normal, attaching to preferences. That's, this is where prejudices come from, which is, I'm sure you'd agree, a, a disaster. I was thinking about this recently, how uh, when I grew up in New Zealand, a small town called Morrinsville, our house was on Studham Street, 16 Studham Street, Morrinsville, Waikato, North Island, New Zealand. And the house we grew up in, I think I lived there for maybe 16, 17 years. And the people who lived across the road from us, just one house up the street across the road, all that time, not once did we ever speak to them because they belonged to a different denomination of Christianity. They didn't belong to the same denomination that our family belonged to. So we didn't talk to them. This is a, a little small country town. And, and yet there was a condition prejudice there. It was normal in our family. It was normal in our church. It was normal in our school. When, when children from that religious school came to our school, you know, we didn't behave very nicely towards them. And, and now, well, thankfully, obviously, many years ago, I realized that that's a prejudice. Just because everybody was behaving that way doesn't make it right, doesn't make it suitable. Mm. So we start to, at some stage in our practice, hopefully learn to reflect on the relationship we have with wanting, even wanting to progress in practice. Are we holding it in the right way? Are we holding it in a way that is really benefiting us? Or is it creating obstructions? Just because we're used to clinging to desire, 
being lost in desire, just because it feels familiar, doesn't make it right. In fact, quite the opposite. So fortunately and thankfully we have these teachings from the Buddha and the great teachers who encourage us to cultivate our spiritual faculties. Sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya, faith, energy, mindfulness, collectiveness, discernment. So potentially we have the capacity to inquire into, not just conceptually think, that's where we start, but in a sensing way, in a feeling manner, inquire into our relationship with wanting and undermine the addiction, because that's what it is, the addiction to that I have, just as a nicotine addiction feels so convincing, the addiction that I have to wanting to get my way start to maybe undermine us. It's like the Buddha's teachings are like a medicine that have the potential if we if we take them in the right way, consistently enough, long enough, then they can have the potential to be able to free us from the addictions that are creating so much suffering. So if we start to reflect on how finding identity in the thinking aspect of our being is a limitation and unsuitable, and also maybe eventually, hopefully, reflecting on being identified as wanting is unsuitable, then the question rises, well, where is my identity? Where do I find my identity? Who am I? If I'm not all these conditions, well, that's a that's a very good question, one that it's, it's suitable to be looking into. Not necessarily looking into it merely with our heads, rather to be listening to that, asking ourselves that question, and then just just feeling it, just feeling the uncertainty, the fear of not knowing. Maybe we ask ourselves the question, who wants to know these answers? And it can trigger fear. Because the deluded sense of, of who I am can feel very threatened. And it's a powerful, a powerful technique for undermining the addiction to the deluded sense of self, inquiring who. So if we, if we engage that practice, we need to do so very gently, very carefully, not forcefully, not demandingly, that's, that's dangerous, yeah. and carefully inquiring into who wants to understand. And then also reflect on what we mean by going for refuge to the Buddha. What is the Buddha? Yes, of course we have the what we've read and heard about the human being, the lived in India 2,600 and something years ago and, and after about 36 years of, of living as a human being he, he realized the Dhamma and awakened to the state of liberation and henceforth was known as the Awakened One, the, the Buddha. And we have his teachings, the Dhamma. In spirit, what is the Buddha? What was the reality of the Buddha's experience? The Buddha's experience was being identified as selfless, just knowing awareness. Consciousness that was freed from all distortions. 
no longer any conceit, no longer any ignorance, greed, hatred or delusion. The consciousness that he previously identified as was purified. And what remained was selfless, just knowing awareness. And when I say identified as, it's, that's quite different from talking about being identified with. And sometimes when I talk about this, people don't listen quite closely enough and, and, and presume that I'm talking about an I being identified with something separate. That's, that's very different. So we can contemplate our commitment to the refuges. I go for refuge to the Buddha. What does that really mean? What do I feel that really means? Well... Maybe it can mean our making an effort towards this possibility, the realization of our true identity as selfless, just knowing awareness. And so even if our practice does bring up fear, then our feeling approach to practice, our sensing inquiry, means that that too is part of practice. If we're identified as wanting, then when fear arises, it can, we can end up clinging to the fear and it can turn into terror, which is terrible and dangerous. So it's much better if as we gradually move forward in our practice, little by little we find ways of letting go of being misidentified as the thinking mind, misidentified as I wanting. To end this contemplation, I'd like to mention a short teaching that I remember hearing from Ajahn Chah many years ago, whether it was actually directly in person uh, in his monastery or whether I heard it on tape, probably it was the latter. But however, wherever I heard it, it, it's something that I'm very happy to share with you and I think can be tremendously beneficial. It's not something along the lines of, Tamai long nai kwam yak. Which translates as, there's nothing to be afraid of if we're not lost in wanting. There's nothing to be afraid of if we're not clinging to desire. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Hey.